This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. session of the MIT Communications Forum. My name is David Thorburn. I'm the director of the Communications Forum and a professor of literature for this semester. And I want to mention that after today's event, uh, next month, uh, in, on the dates listed uh, uh, April 10th and then uh, again April 24th, there are two events. You can only see one of them here. I guess we could, we could move it up, but I'll, I'll mention them to you in any case. Uh, two related forums that we're doing in um, collaboration with the new Center on Civic Media. Uh, the first is an, will, will be a, a general discussion of both skeptical and utopian perspectives on the emerging digital future. Uh, and we, uh, our two speakers uh, are, in some sense, the most distinguished embodiments of what I think of as the utopian and the critical or skeptical perspectives on these matters. Uh, Cass Sunstein, formerly of the University of Chicago, now of Harvard, uh, and Yochai Benkler, formerly of Yale, now also of Harvard. Pretty soon, all of us will be at Harvard if this, if this continues, although I hope not. Uh, uh, that, that uh, session is the one that you can see on the board here. Uh, it will involve visionary and skeptical perspectives on the promise and perils of the internet era. Uh, and I hope all of you will uh, attend that uh, session with some sharp and hopefully uh, uh, skeptical questions. The second event uh, uh, held, to be held on April 24th is entitled Youth and Civic Engagement. Uh, and it, it, will in, it will involve uh, uh, a discussion of, of the question, broadly, of the question of whether the unprecedented access to information that is now available because of the World Wide Web, whether that has changed young people's perceptions of d democracy and what opportunities, new opportunities for civic engagement, uh, especially for youth, the internet is offering. And are, we're very excited about this ongoing collaboration with the, Center for Civ with the new Center for Civic Media. Uh, and uh, in that first session next time, Our World Digitized, the new director, Ellen Hume, who's in the audience here, uh, will uh, be introduced officially and will we'll make her sort of maiden appearance before the MIT Communications Forum. And I'm, I'm happy about that as well. Uh, today's session uh, uh, takes up a question that has become increasingly important for all all folks interested in television, both in its national manifestations and in its global potential global embodiments. A salient feature of contemporary television has been the appearance of programs that seem to appeal more widely across national boundaries than many earlier television shows had done. Although this is a complicated thing to say, and I know that our panelists will, will uh, complicate and ironize that, 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 that question as we discuss it. Uh, examples of that kind of program include a range of reality shows such as Big Brother or Survivor, which have many embodiments in different national cultures, as well as fiction series such as Ugly Betty, which uh, um, a, a shows like that undergo relatively small facelifts before being introduced to new audiences. 
And there are also many American programs, and this may be uh, an even more significant aspect of our discourse today, Lost would be an example, or Desperate Housewives an example, which travel abroad with virtually no, uh, with, with virtually no alterations as country-specific promotion and distribution strategies adjust those programs to new national contexts. So our topic today is both the emergence of certain forms of programming that may seem to have an impulse to move beyond uh, nationally specific interests and to, and to appeal in a certain sense globally to a kind of global village. Uh, at, but the other side of it too, the, the, the ongoing and, and, and apparently uh, immensely powerful impact of American entertainment programming on the rest of the world and the way in which national uh, television systems in Europe especially, but all over the world really, uh, react to and, uh, and adapt to uh, America, and utilize uh, uh, American, American television formats. Uh, our speakers today are uh, our, our speakers today are particularly well situated to address this question. And, and uh, it's, I, I want to mention especially how multicultural uh, our, our panels are. Uh, um, one of them, William Uricchio, who is a professor at MIT, also holds an appointment at the University of Utrecht in, in uh, uh, the Netherlands, and uh, teaches there as well. And, and uh, uh, Dutch, English, uh, Dutch, English, and German are only among the languages that Professor Uricchio uh, is familiar with. Uh, uh, R Roberta Pearson, although she sounds like an American when you hear her accent, is at least as British as she is American, Te has taught for many years at the university, uh, at, at, at Nottingham University in, in, in Great Britain, and is as truly sort of... Uh, uh, bicultural as any, as any person I've ever known. So her perspective is both Americanized and Europeanized or, 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 or uh, Anglicized in very rich ways. And finally, Ego Muller, uh, who is this term a visiting professor at the University of Michigan, uh, uh, directs the master's program in film and television studies at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Uh, let me say a word about each of our speakers and then we'll, we'll, we'll turn to their uh, presentations. The order of our presentations will be uh, Eurekia will go first, will speak for, uh, each speaker will have 15 minutes to make a presentation, then the panelists and I will have a brief conversation based on some of the questions raised by their presentations, and then in the second hour we'll turn to conversations with you folks in the audience, and I hope you have many questions and ideas to suggest about aspects of reality programming and other forms of programming as well, the whole problem of global television. Uh, so so let, let me give a quick profile of each of our speakers. Uh, as many of you know, William Uricchio is a, is a professor and the co-director of the MIT Comparative Media Studies program, and he's also a professor of comparative media history at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. His most recent books include Media Cultures, published in 2006, on responses to, to media in post-9-11 era in Germany and the United States, and a forthcoming book entitled We Europeans, Media, Representations, Identities. Roberta Pearson is a professor of film and television studies and the director of the Institute of Film and Television Studies at the University of Nottingham. Among her books are Cult Television, published in 2004, and Reading Lost, Perspectives on a Hit Television Show, 
published in 2008, this year. She's now working on a, a, a book, The Blackwell's Companion to Television Genre. Ego Muller is a visiting professor at the University of Michigan in the Department of Screen Arts and Cultures and directs the master's program in film and television studies at Utrecht University. Muller is working on a project entitled Popular Participatory Television, which explores old and new forms of participatory television and digital television's reshaping of the consumer-producer relationship. It's a very great pleasure to uh, introduce these speakers and to moderate this discussion. We'll begin with William. Okay, and I'd like to actually begin with a question, if I could. Um, how many of you have watched television? It's, it's about contexts for viewing television. How many of you have viewed television in Europe? And in Asia, very broadly defined, uh, Africa? And Latin America? Australia? <laughs> okay, good, good. Um, so I have to begin with a, a sort of um, proviso or, or even an apology. Although my, our remit was to talk about global, uh, in fact, I'm going to focus really on American-European relations in television, um, partly because it allows me to drill down a little deeper in terms of some of the factors I want to talk about. The factors I, I will mention, however, by and large exist in other um, continental uh, settings. I just want to open with a quick anecdote. Um, a few years back, and in fact, this book, We Europeans, comes out of it. Uh, I was um, one of the leaders of a European Science Foundation project called Changing Media, Changing Europe. In fact, Roberta was, uh, was on the same team. And we held our meetings in, in sort of odd spots in Europe to pin down what's Europe, what is Europe is a tough one. I mean, it's, it's very much in flux. Our mode of attack was actually to find locations where identity was very much contested. So Palermo, Istanbul, Berlin, places where whether for historical reasons or present day political reasons, religious reasons, identity was contested. One of the places we went was Bilbao. And we met with uh, people that, you know, the political leadership of, uh, of the ETA, the so-called terrorist uh, movement. We met with anti-terrorist pro-Spain folks. And one of the real odd moments of that trip was that we went, I mean, Bilbao's an odd city. On the one hand, the, you know, Frank Gehry's other building is there, and one of his many other buildings, the Guggenheim. Radiating internationalism, the transcendence of art, and yet the whole Basque problematic, of course, is about localization and a kind of rather a, a sort of fierce form of localization. We went to the Basque TV station, ETIB, I believe it was called, or EIBT or something, and so great, you know, we're going to see this. This is going to we're going to see Basqueness in action and walking touring the studios. And what do we see? But the set for the wheel of the wheel of fortune in Basque. And that really provoked a debate with some of the program makers there. I mean, hey guys, you know, you're fighting. People are dying. People are dying in the streets. Sorry? Oh, sure, we could go to a Wheel of Fortune picture. People are dying in the streets to fight for Basque identity. And if this is the payoff, what, a, what an odd payoff. And it led to actually a sort of interesting debate about, well, in fact, you know, you see it as the Wheel of Fortune, but we see it as, and I'm afraid my Basque isn't up to it, but the Basque version of Wheel of Fortune. Um, interesting in terms of looking at what I saw as the pervasiveness of America's reach uh, into, into very resistant niches of uh, European culture, and obviously what those folks in that niche read in an entirely different way. What I'd like to do is briefly mention five different entry points. Really, I'll only develop a couple of them. 
Globalization of TV, I think, can be looked at in many different ways. Um, to begin with, the very technology of television is intriguing uh, because it has highly national histories, highly national developmental histories. The British think they invented it. The Russians, I think, can rightly say that they invented it. The Germans, of course, have a claim to the throne. We Americans, um, forgetting that our developers were Russian and coming out of St. Petersburg, we claim that we developed it. That's odd because if you look at the history, the technological history of the medium, it's emphatically global. I mean, different countries contributed different bits. And in fact, if you look at the early deployment of television, take 1936 as an average year, as, as, a, as a typical year, television in 1936 in Stalin's Russia, in the Soviet Union, in Hitler's Germany, and in Roosevelt's America, all was being driven by RCA licenses. So globalization has been a reality to the very technological underpinnings of the medium, and yet the stories that people learn in broadcast histories tend to be highly national stories. So I'm not going to, obviously we're not going to take that approach today, but that needs to be said. Second thing that is sort of interesting to think about is um, that as television, particularly in the post-war era, so 1946, 47 onwards, uh, as it takes root um, not just in the States, but, uh, sorry, not just in Europe, but, but outside Europe, um, is actively pushed as an American invention and an American concept. And it's actively pushed by the United States Information Agency as part of its endeavor to combat communism. That's after 1948. Um, and as part of its endeavor to help civilize, if not conquer, the world and make it ripe and ready for an American marketplace. That push takes a couple of interesting forms. One of them is literally um, tax breaks for producers. This was in the film industry as well. Um, hardship subsidies so that these uh, programs could make extra money. Uh, it took the form of facilitating through the you know, commerce attaches and the cultural attaches, facilitating basically salesmen making the rounds in these countries and making sure doors were open so that they could do their pitch to sell American programming. But I think the most Hmm, effective, insidious, I'm not sure what, what term to use, but the, one of the ways that really seemed to have a good payoff was actually to promote uh, exchanges and tours and educational endeavors, whereby, in this case I'll say European because I know it better, European uh, program makers would come to the States, go to NBC or CBS or ABC, and watch how, watch real professionals make television. Um, this will come back actually in the last point I want to make. All this to say that there's a terrific amount of exchange of ideas that takes place in these sometimes unexpected places. Study visits, journals, uh, trade journals are read pretty much across the borders. So that really shapes a lot of the discourse, sets up a lot of the expectations. Things like genre find a place, even if people only read about them or see them on visits. Um, uh, they carry over and sort of pop up indigenously, even though they're copies of. A third area. Um, that I'd like to mention is deals literally with program sales. So, you know, Germany buying Dallas. And uh, what was, there was a saying, at least when I lived in Berlin, that something like Thursday without Dallas is like coffee without coffee milk. You know, it was an ad for, no, sorry. Um, coffee without coffee milk is like Thursday without Dallas. It was an ad for a certain kind of coffee milk. And it was, it spoke to the kind of cultural presence of Dallas. So one area is, is uh, one of the two areas I'd like to talk a lot about are the program exchange area. Second area I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about in that regard is the format exchange. Um, that's an extraordinarily interesting one. I know Ego is going to go into that in greater depth, so I'll, I'll stay a bit light on that. 
And the last thing that I want to mention and I will end with has to do with the mentality surrounding television. That there's a mentality both in terms of what is television. I have many colleagues at Utrecht, uh, for example, who proudly, you know, the minute they hear what I do, oh, professor of comparative television history, ah. Do you know that I don't have a television? You know, that's the, oh, that's. Do you know that I don't have a vacuum cleaner? I mean, come on, what is this, what is, where is this conversation going? Um, that's said quite proudly by some people and um, by some well-educated people. And behind that is, is, is a set of attitudes, a set of assumptions about what television is and, and what, sorts of, what sorts of things leak and emanate from that dusty box in the corner. So, so that's certainly part of the mentality. But there's another part of the mentality that's particularly pervasive among program makers. And that's a mentality that's changed over the years. And I would say right now, I, I think I can say based on, um, I pretty accurately say based on visits to, to a number of different, um, both program production facilities and also television stations, that it's okay to be gung-ho at a time when Europe is like not particularly happy with our fearless leader in this country. It's okay to be robustly American when it comes to the profession of television making. That's a good thing. Americans make good TV is the, is the mentality uh, inside a lot of the industry. And so American notions of professionalization, American job categories, that sort of thing, have, have helped to structure. I'd say this over the last decade or so, have really helped to structure um, or restructure a good bit of the European industry. And I know some of the, some of the other markets as well. So let me just, having said all that, jump back into the program exchange level. Um, certainly in Europe, this has been a very contested space. Most European broadcasters begin, and in fact still hew to, I'm glad to say, a notion that broadcasting is very much part of the public sphere. Uh, radio broadcasting and television broadcasting have an obligation, emerge from, have a historical obligation to the public sphere, a place where people can exchange views, exchange news, debate, um, where, where, where the, the viewer or the listener is constructed as a citizen. That's in sharp contrast to the US model where we understand that the broadcasting space is a marketplace and where the listener or the viewer is constructed as a consumer. So that difference, I mean, I've, written, I've, I've painted it in very broad strokes, but that difference still lurks on, still lingers on in, um, in Europe. Now, this despite the fact that RTL, uh, RT, RTL uh, is a, as commercial as any American station you'd want to find, that ITV in Britain from the you know, late 50s onwards, or 55 onwards, is uh, commercial. Still, even within a commercial setting in Europe, there's a sense in which this obligation to address, uh, to, to configure itself around the public sphere is, is at least present. And that sh has shown up certainly in the, the rate at which um, American programming has been accepted or rejected outright. A lot of stuff to talk about here. Um, the way in which American programming is seen as dumbed down sometimes. Six minutes. The way in which there's a sort of emphatic one-way flow partly because Americans are pretty intolerant about non-English sourced material where Europeans are more accustomed to it. Um, the really interesting part of the story to signal this has to do with what happens when American programs are transplanted. And I want to simply mention two different kinds of models. One is what happens when an American commercial show is shown in an environment where the advertisements are plucked out. A lot of American TV shows are built around a five-act as opposed to three-act structure. They're built for the ads. They're built to hook you in with a sort of uh, you know, a cliffhanger so that you stay through the ads and come back. Take out the ads, and you've got a narrative that is 
really action-packed. I mean, it really goes up and down. Like, and that's put a lot of pressure on European producers who sort of think of television as in an hour block without ads, where you can sort of slowly develop your story. Younger audiences increasingly seem drawn to American programming because of its perceived vitality, which in fact is simply a kind of an aberration. It's, we've plucked the ads out, so of course it's got this bizarre structure. Heavy-duty redundancy, because again, you can't count on the full attention of a, of a US viewer. So that's been interesting. But also the reverse has happened. Programs produced for HBO, which are made to be seen without advertisements, are put in an RTL context where they're punctured by advertisements, which also kind of destroys the flow, and there, there are no easy spots to do that. So that translation process, in fact, even when nothing is touched in the program itself, often yields heavy-duty localization that has a lot to do with how that program is perceived and, uh, and seen. Um, it's nothing like the fate of US films in the early days that went to the Russian market where happy endings were recut into, you know, D.W. Griffith, Last Minute Rescues were recut into misses. They, had, they liked pessimistic films in, the, in Russia in the old days. But that, not, that sort of thing doesn't happen as far as I can tell. Last point I want to mention then maybe deals with formats. Formats begin, um, as far as I can tell, as a kind of polite plagiarism. Uh, people see ideas and they take those ideas and run with them. As far as I can tell, actual licensing of form television formats doesn't begin until the early 1970s. And that's interesting because if you look back to the 1950s, the ITV is running, the mid-50s is ITV is running something like 10 American quiz shows repackaged for the British, you know, reshot, localized in Britain. Um, there's quite a bit of format stuff being picked up, acknowledged or unacknowledged. Um, and some of, I think, Germany's longest running quiz shows are American-based. Tic-tac-toe is tic-tac-quiz. What's my line is was finish, $64,000 question. Alles oder nicht. And these are programs that are running, let's say, from 1958 until 1989. So there's a very, very long runs. Terrifically interesting um, localization here. Two, main, two or three main places where you can see this. You can see it in the news. The whole concept of the anchorman is pretty much an American concept. That did not emerge naturally in Europe, which had a, a rather pluriform notion of what news or public affairs or the television journal was. The anchor person with a personality that was also a journalist is really an American invention, and it takes until the 70s, even 80s, for that to penetrate Europe. Now, if you look at European news, Regardless of what country you go to, it looks, it'll look different, but you'll recognize it as an American format. So that would be a, an example of a format carryover, in a sense, permitted by deregulation in Europe, but driven by this sort of uh, this American um, model. David, how much? Two minutes. Okay. What can we say in two minutes that's still interesting? Um, the quiz shows differ, just to add one point. One of the localizing elements is that the news tends to be, the, the questions tend to be about knowledge rather than trivia. That's an interesting difference. Part of that lingering on in the public sphere. Um, there are, looking at sort of, Europe of course has gotten its revenge in the last decade or so with programs like Big Brother, Survivor. All You Need Is Love, is that, what, what's that series called? Um, Elizabeth was doing work on it. The, where a, a couple, where someone that has unrequited love for someone is put together with them on TV and it may or may not make it. The regional variations of that show are fabulous. I mean, in Italy, it's an opera that always misfires. I mean, it's set in a piazza with an orchestra and lights and it's disaster. In Finland, it's a conversation, like it could be a business conversation. In Holland, it's usually a gay relationship. In Turkey, it's a young guy talking to an older guy about a woman. I mean, 
it's the same format, and the licensing is going on around this program, but the cultural differences are terrific. And I want to maybe just end by saying, what makes some of these formats, when they, when they work across cultures, so fascinating is that they become real metrics for trying to understand, might be cultural caricature, but cultural specificity. It's writ large in these programs, because you can there's a framework of sameness that really highlights and foregrounds the, the, the difference. And with that, I will shut up. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Especially for staying in his time frame. Thank you, William. Okay, well, I hope, I hope you can see that. Um, I hope it's not too offensive. Um, actually, I don't care. Um, I, could spend the, I could spend the entire 15 minutes just unpacking that image, which is for launching a new um, digital channel in the UK called 5US, which does um, films and television programs, and, and you can see the assumptions there that they're trying to counter. But um, it, it, we, it, it's, a, it's rather more complicated than that. In fact, I, I'm going to talk uh, specifically about UK tele U.S. television in the U.K., uh, focusing particularly on drama, since that's my research interest. But David said that I perhaps should very, very quickly <laughs> give you the whole history of British television. Uh, so after the Brits invented television, uh, <laughs> they began to, uh, in a uh, post-war period, um, the BBC was BBC One. It was um, the only game in town. The public service remit that William was talking about was precisely the same for um, television as well. Um, it was fi financed through a license fee. Everybody had to pay if you had a television. Um, in 1955, commercial television comes along in the form of ITV, independent television, causes huge controversy. Um, and um, in fact, one of the, the controversy about that is partly about dumbing down and vulgarity of the huge amount of American content because they needed content at that point. Um, in 1964, BBC Two comes along. That's known as a minority channel. It has a public service remit, uh, but is meant to cater for more minority interests. 1982, Channel Four, another public service um, channel. Even though these have, even though that one has advertising, again catering to minority already interest meant to be edgy. Five comes along um, a few years ago. I can't remember I was there by that time. Um, it was first known as the Fucking and Football Channel um, before it rebranded and more about that. And each of the, um, each of the... Um, Is that how they advertised it? In the uh, no, it was, it, was, it was sort of a colloquial discourse, shall we say. Um, and um, each of the terrestrial channels, as we call them, the main channels, uh, has had digital offshoots um, as the this, this channel spectrum's been expanding rapidly, probably have about as many as in the U.S. now, probably most of them are, uh, many of them are U.S. Uh, satellite channels, in fact. Um, and another key one that I want to talk about today is um, Sky, which is Rupert Murdoch, Sky, uh, Sky Television, a big um, satellite provider, uh, has, a, has a channel called Sky One. Okay, so as I've said, in the, in, in the 1950s, um, American content um, was a real problem because it was seen as, as dumbing down. Um, in the late 70s and late 80s, uh, sorry, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, American television again becomes a point of, of controversy um, with Dallas, in fact, as William mentioned, and Dynasty. And there was a famous complaint about um, we're in danger of having wall-to-wall -wall Dallas. 
Um, when I got to Britain almost 13 years ago now, um, when I went back to Britain, um, you could see most American television on Channel 4 and on Sky 1. Um, but what was happening at that point was that they weren't on the terrestrial channels, they weren't on the majority channels, even on the, um, even on the minority channels, BBC 2, B, uh, Channel 4, um, they were um, rather late at night. They were seen as appealing um, to a fairly um, elite, educated audience, what um, in the British class system advertising demographics would call, be called the ABC One audience. Um, now, the situation has changed radically over the past couple of years. Um, the New York Times said recently um, that on European television, American shows have been enjoying a popularity not seen since the 1980s heyday of Dallas and Dynasty. Um, and this is because US broadcasters are increasingly dependent on foreign revenue streams um, in an age of fluctuating and uncertain domestic revenue streams. Simultaneously, European broadcasters, particularly public service ones, are having their budget squeezed and need content to fill the multi-channel environment. Uh, this is particularly the case in Britain with, as I've said, the traditional channels um, expanding digitally. And U.S. producers can still spend more on programs, uh, thus having better production values than many European ones. Um, but it's not just a matter of economic necessity, and here's what's really interesting. that, As I said before, American television has often been spoken of as in the same terms as American cinema has been since the 1930s in terms of vulgarity, dumbing down, appealing to the wrong people, as was the case with Dallas. Um, but in fact, quality U.S. television, and I'm using quality in inverted commas and don't have time to go into that, is increasingly seen as an arbiter of quality abroad. Uh, we've gone from a situation in the U.K. where American TV used to represent the worst of popular culture to where it now represents the best, and the Brits know that they can't compete. Uh, the Radio Times, sort of the British TV guide, but a bit more upmarket, in 2002 published an article asking, why can't Britain's long-running dramas be more like America's? And the author asserted that the cream of American TV now stands for real quality. Um, in an article in The Observer, uh, uh, a, a, a market broadsheet um, in 2002, uh, entitled Why I Love American TV, the writer said, the greatest shows on earth now come from the United States. Uh, more recently, um, we've had a whole spate of articles about how television is actually better than the cinema. Um, the Guardian Weekend had an article in May of 2006 saying, um, is cinema in its death throes? Movie stars and directors are decamping to the small screen, and The Sopranos, Simpsons, and other unlikely heroes are thus are making this a golden age of quality television. It's The Sopranos and The Simpsons who are doing that. Now, despite all this praise, U.S. shows, as I've said, have until very recently been shown on the minority or digital channels, often aimed at younger, more upmarket viewers. Um, and what's happening in the multi-channel environment is um, that um, increasingly, um, U.S. shows in their entirety are being inserted into the British national context as a way of marketing and branding the, dis the, the different channels. And this is where this, um, uh, the launch of Five US, a digital channel, um, which I can show you more about in a minute, um, which is devoted to uh, US film and television, um, is important. And, and obviously, it's, it's countering this whole history of um, the vulgarity of American programming and also, I think, picking up on some of the anti Americanism um, stemming from Iraq 
and, and those sorts of things. Um, so there have been, been this really, um, you know, this is an entire book. I have a student working on this. Other people are working on this. So I'm just skimming the surface here. But one of the most interesting ways um, in which um, American television has become very central to the uh, British media environment is that um, Sky, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, is a satellite provider competing uh, with a an outfit called Virgin Media, owned by Richard Branston, uh, which is a cable provider. And um, there's all kinds of economic backstory, but for some reason, the, the two corporations now really hate each other. And um, Sky One was carried on cable television. Sky One, which has lots of American programming, like Battlestar Galactica, Lost, um, um, 24, uh, which, by the way, it stole from um, um, the to British terrestrial channels having more money, and and this was a, another important battle that that American programming is incre becoming increasingly costly as it functions in this competitive market uh, branding distinction um, environment, um, and there were um, national campaigns um, by by Sky and Virgin around this contestation over Sky One, Virgin claiming it had better technology, and Sky saying, don't go over to Virgin, you'll lose Sky One, and having huge posters all over the country, don't lose Lost, get Jack back. Um, so absolutely, absolutely appealing to this audience for American television drama. Um, sorry. Uh, and as I've said already, Lost was um, Lost was taken from um, Channel Four by Sky, and uh, my colleague Paul Grange at Cardiff at, at Nottingham has a um, article about this in my forthcoming book on Lost, which uh, it will be out in the autumn, and I urge you to get because it's sort of looking at Lost as emblematic of the sort of profound trans transformations going on in in, in the. American television industry at the moment. Um, and what Sky did at that moment was to, um, it paid nearly a million an, an episode for Lost uh, and began showing it in 2006 and began a huge campaign around Lost, um, saying that it had taken it from um, Channel 4 uh, with the, um, with the um, slogan Lost now found on Sky 1. And I'll just show you here. This is the um, this is a whole web page on Sky One devoted to Lost, on which you can see uh, on which you can see obviously the um, the pushing of the ancillary products so important to programs like Lost, in which you can see. Um, not sure that's what. That's actually the front. That's actually the home page of Sky. Actually, that that's pushing that. Now, if we drill down a little further to, where is this? Fine. Come on. What are you doing here? Oh, here we go. Okay, um, we should see a page devoted entirely to Lost here, I hope. Um, and it doesn't, where is it? Oh, here we go, okay, here it is. Whole page devoted to Lost on which you can see uh, podcasts, you can, if you go to video, um, you can see the Lost <laughs> Missing Pieces, Mobisodes, which were uh, originally on the, on originally uh, done through Verizon in this country, um, then went on to the ABC Lost website, but which I couldn't access in the UK because they were saving it until they put it on the um, on the Lost website here. So um, there's a lot of coordination as to how the various programs and the various ancillary products around those programs um, get distributed in the UK. But clearly, this is a huge element of um, Sky's marketing. Um, I've 
Four minutes, okay. All right, well then I'll, I, 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 I will skip all my other examples <laughs> except to say, and we'll save some more for later. I'll just say that there's one more example I just wanted to show you here because this is so good. Um, there's a program called Dexter about a serial killer, which doesn't seem to be on the front page here. Then you'll just have to take my, it was on the, oh, here it is, the front page of ITV, major um, commercial station, um, is showing it in pri what would be considered um, really prime time, has caused all kinds of controversy. Again, allegations of dumbing down. Um, and I have more examples of how the BBC is using heroes that perhaps I can show you in our discussions. Um, but I also just wanted to finish up in, in my four minutes then talking about um, another phenomenon that's occurring aside from the, 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 the branding and the insertion of American programs into completely this completely different national context um, is that what uh, what this has um, brought about is a much greater um, sinking up in temporal terms of the distribution of American television globally. Um, last week at the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, I went off with a bunch of Lost fanboys to a hotel room to watch the current episode of Lost on Thursday night. That was the episode of Lost that, was going to, that I was going to see if I had been at home in the UK on Sunday night. Um, three days difference. And this is increasingly the case, whereas it used to be that you know it would be months or even years before American programs would come over. Um, this syncing up is required both by um, worries about illegal downloading and ABC and Sky um, doing deals to, do, to profit from the downloading of the shows and also because of all the ancillary products. Um, so that, for example, when the original Lost alternate reality game, The Lost Experience, um, was conducted between the first and second seasons of the show, um, both Australia and the UK were out of sync, hadn't seen all of the necessary episodes. Um, they're in the middle now of another one, um, Find 815, um, and as, as far as I, the UK is fully in sync, and perhaps some of the Australians in the room can tell me where we are with Lost in Australia, um, this seems to me to be a really profound um, transformation of the global television regime, um, because it used to be that um, there was a real clear sense of centers and peripheries, at least temporally, and I think that's been being, um, that's being overthrown now. Um, and I'll stop there and we can go into it more later, I suppose. Thank you very much. There you go. Thank you, David. Um, I want to address uh, a little more in detail question of the international circulation of formats. Uh, William already mentioned this as uh, a sector within the industry that uh, is the fastest growing sector of uh, the international television market at the moment. Um, it's, uh, well, different uh, figures like 1 billion to 2 mil billion US or euros a year in this market internationally. And uh, the leading countries in the development and trade of uh, formats are European countries. Britain is the leader, kind of dominating 35% uh, of the whole market. Uh, Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands. Germany is the biggest receiving country uh, of uh, international formats. And among the countries that uh, receive formats is the US. And for the first time, I guess, in the history, there is another continent uh, that uh, dominates the production of a form of television uh, other than the U.S. Um, and 
Well, we should let me first uh, discuss the notion of format. It's a kind of uh, very complicated. Makes it hard to understand. Right? Okay, thank you. How should I pronounce format. it? Format. 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 Good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry. Um, so uh, formats are uh, very complicated legal uh, con constructions and economic constructions. Uh, many countries, among them Germany, say uh, formats can't be copyrighted, so there can be uh, no legal action taken in formats, since uh, copyrighted can only be uh, entities that are kind of materialized. And formats are ideas how to produce a program and know-how how to produce a program. So there are countries that just say there is no use in uh, doing legal action, action. But the industry needs the notion of formats in order to uh, do international trade. So uh, producers agree to pay a certain fee for formats in order to overcome legal action afterwards. Uh, but at the same time, uh, so, and format is, we often confuse that much more than just a genre and a totally different thing than genres are. Uh, it's uh, not only the, like, the defining characteristic, characteristic elements uh, of a program or program idea, it's also uh, the knowledge how to produce it, and if it comes to complex productions like Big Brother or Survivor, and not just uh, uh, the uh, Wheel of Fortune or what have you, it's very complicated to make sure that at the same time, uh, while the action is going on, uh, an hour of television per day or three times per week, uh, an uh, internet uh, appearance is produced that can be consumed more or less live. So this knowledge is also um, sold, uh, plus the so-called Bible uh, demographic of the uh, target audience, uh, ratings, uh, scheduling devices, how to get uh, advertisers and prices for these shows. So a lot of knowledge that is uh, kind of sold when uh, a format is sold. Um, so that's why producers need that knowledge. And when a format is sold, uh, more than just the ideas, how the program should look like sold, but also the know-how of production. And as European producers say, American television is uh, great in news and drama, but they know nothing about reality. Uh, we, as Europeans, had to bring that knowledge to the U.S. Uh, and I've talked to the producer of the Dutch, uh, well, the Dutch producer, supervisor of the American first season of Big Brother, and he said, well, these guy, guys kind of spoiled everything uh, and made it, um, well, a minor success uh, since they didn't know, know how to deal with real people in this situation, they were just afraid that something could happen that the audience wouldn't appreciate. Um, whereas they in the Netherlands, even the first season when they were very defensive in their approach, kind of pushed people to do things they wouldn't do normally in, in their unfilmed 
life at home. Um, so with the trade of formats, uh, uh, know-how, how to produce formats is traded. And maybe uh, this is the more interesting aspect to talk about, the uh, kind of uh, trade and exchange of know-how and uh, production of culture as opposed to uh, the very shows as uh, the, the culture, uh, the, 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 sorry, the other way around, uh, the, the production of, uh, the culture of production is traded, whereas uh, these formats, when realized in a different country and appropriated in a different uh, television culture, um, are not necessarily a production of a, a foreign culture. And I just want to show a short clip and ask you, well, many of you, since you have watched television abroad, might know this, but uh, recognize the very uh, origin of uh, a show that in most countries of the world, and especially, I guess, in America, is perceived as uh, typically uh, American. Let's see whether the computer works. <laughs> is this hesitating? Is that is it coming or you can't it, tell? It, well, you know this. Uh, He's trying to bring up the program to play it. Yeah. Let's see. While this is happening, I have an anecdote that I meant to mention. Are, are we ready? Okay, I'll save my anecdote. I have a good anecdote about global TV that I should have given in my introduction. Tonight on America's Most Wanted. This amateur video was our best clue to solve a murder, but it was tough to make an ID from the blurry images. Find out who helped us clear up the picture and take down an accused killer. And we'll also be following our noses to catch the scent of a killer. Plus, we got to sniff out the hiding places of lots more bad guys because the manhunt starts right now. March 31st, 2007. To date, you have been responsible for 925 captures. This is America's Most Wanted with host John Walsh. Across the country, our team of correspondents. Now, from our Washington Crime Center, join the manhunt. Good evening. Detective work rarely follows a straight line to a killer. The more common route is full of twists, turns, and blind alleys. When we first showed you our next case, one tipster came through with the information we hoped would quickly bring it to a close. But as Angeline Hartman reports, as good as that tip was, 
this investigation is still far from over. So I guess we can stop here. Um, I guess you can't think of an argument that will uh, show that this is an adaptation of a British uh, program. Um, Crime Watch UK that aired uh, in 1984 in Britain before it was, well, that made it accessible for the international market and then was introduced <coughs> to different uh, television cultures. Uh, in many European countries, um, adaptations of Crime Watch UK are perceived as typical American television, reality TV. In France, uh, this show flopped since it was American TV and the uh, French uh, producers and population didn't want that. But actually, and I should start and get the next example. Actually, that format, or that program, it's not... Uh, a format in the very sense of the word, since it was just, as William described, adapted, uh, adapted uh, by producers who, by accident, saw this show and thought that might be interesting for our culture too, and just uh, got the idea and produced it. There were no fees paid and there was no legal action. Um, the British version was uh, not original too, um, it's based on a show and I show this clip don't like to show this clip since it kind of reaffirms uh, any uh, stereotype about German television <laughs> uh, it's actually a German program that was uh, first aired in 1967 on the public uh, service channel uh, ZDF and that's a version from 1997, and that's how it opens. Jahre XY, 300 Sendungen und ab heute eine neue Einsatzzentrale. We should stop here. You get, you get the difference, uh, don't you? So the question is, if we talk about the international trade of especially formats, uh, do we talk about the export of culture as uh, we talked about when we talked about the Americanization uh, of uh, the international television culture, when we talk about the export and trade of uh, um, programs like Dallas and so on. And I guess uh, you can really, in this case, make an argument that America's most wanted is a typical carrier of uh, German uh, ideology. Uh, there's no way to make this argument. Um, and, well, these shows are 
a quite extreme example since uh, they are doing the work the police should do, that's their claim. Uh, and that's why they are connected to uh, a lot of, uh, for television shows, untypical legal and juridical uh, uh, questions. Uh, since they do that job together with the police, they have to uh, kind of recognize certain rules and, and standards different to, to other formats. But I guess I, 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 will, uh, I want to argue that they only in a very uh, special way do what formats allow for uh, in general, uh, namely to be adopted by a national culture. And if you talk about, well, uh, even if uh, formats make sure since uh, they wanted to be, uh, want to be recognized as brands and traded as brands, that uh, there are specific and uh, characteristic elements that won't be changed. That's always the fight between the uh, receiving country that tries to create a national version of it and the senior producer who comes with the copyright to uh, supervise uh, the process of uh, production. Um, so since, uh, although there are uh, certain elements everybody would recognize, and if you go to some African country where uh, idols, American idols or British idols or what version is on, you will recognize it from the graphics since a format is sold, uh, a format goes with the uh, computer software to generate the recognizable graphics. But for the rest, the stories that are come or, or develop with the ongoing contest of that show are totally different. Uh, there are national candidates, there are national hosts, there's a national language uh, that is spoken on the program, there's a national sense of humor, uh, there's a national sense of how you uh, should address those who are voted out and how uh, to, to, to care about them. Uh, and there are national incidents or events created when they, within these shows that don't translate. Um, if I have the time? One minute, okay. Uh, if I had the time, <laughs> I could show some more uh, clips, but I guess uh, the discussion, uh, the discussion will offer it. So, um, my, my, to, to summarize, my point is uh, that uh, though Europe is proud to be the leading continent in uh, the uh, trade and development of uh, format, formatted television, you can claim that Europe is kind of Europeanizing uh, the world. It uh, exports a specific uh, culture of production, but the production of culture, if it comes to formats, is quite open. Uh, and though there are recognizable elements all over the world, uh, the specific events and meaning of the programs uh, is produced locally. So I would claim that there's nothing like a national identity of formats. So one implication of what Ego was saying, and I hope we'll be able to discuss this, is that the notion of global television is dubious, that, that since there are these national inflections. Uh, William. Just comment. a little epilogue, actually. Um, so we've, we've obviously focused on Europe. Um, mostly because I think that's where our television experience and, and expertise is, is centered. But we're located 
at a moment of, of real change, of technological change, which is enabling a lot of cultural change. And the thing I would point to would be something like IPTV or YouTube. But IPTV as a source for, I mean, um, some of some of the CMS students turned me on to mysoju.com, a great source for Korean, Japanese, some little bit of Chinese television that's, that's coming into this, that's circulating throughout the world without necessarily paying license fees or having official translations, as I understand it. We haven't talked about those. Those are sort of on the fringe of what's happening because they're outside the, the economic system. But profound carriers of other ideas of genre, other ideas of drama, other ideas of television. And that's not just... I mean, you can find that pretty much around the world. You can find now online sources of television programming that are fast changing what used to be available through your local cable or satellite system. So just to signal that that broader, I mean, there's a whole new reality out there that's, that's changing under our feet. We focused on sort of institutional practices, but these are obviously equally robust, if not maybe even ultimately more profound uh, practices in the wind turn it over to the audience in a second, but I want to continue our, our internal conversation a bit first. First, I want to mention that anecdote that I neglected to uh, mention it when I did my introduction. When the announcement of this forum was sent round uh, on email to various locations at MIT, uh, my colleague in women's studies, Michelle Oshima, sent a note to me saying uh, that she was very interested in our session, was sorry that she couldn't make it, and she asked if uh, someone on the panel would share this anecdote with the audience. And I, I found it a very resonant anecdote, and I think it addresses some of the tensions that, or com complexities that have come out in our discussion so far. Uh, Michelle described how uh, uh, last year she was visiting Mali, that's the, that w the West African country whose capital is Timbuktu, for those of you who, like me, would have to look it up. Uh, uh, and during her visit there, she said that she had a driver to take her around to various events uh, at, at a, a, a ceremonial event she was attending. And it, there was a break in their activities, and her driver uh, took her to visit his home, which was a sort of compound, a kind of uh, uh, in, in, in which is essentially a family compound, a large extended uh, uh, African family. And it was a polygamous family, although apparently a wealthy one. There were two wives, many generations, uh, one husband, many generations of aunts, uncles, children, and so forth. Uh, and Michelle's mentioned that uh, when she arrived at the compound, she found sort of the vast majority of the, uh, of the folks there all gathered around in the courtyard watching television, watching a television program. And the program, uh, and they were watching, and she at first didn't see what it was. It was dubbed in French, so she wasn't sure what the program was. And she went and looked, and it, <laughs> it was the American cable program Big Love. And those of you who, uh, and I have to explain the joke in a way, those of you who haven't seen Big Love, it's a, it's a show about polygamy, uh, about American polygamists, which is a very, very unusual subculture, a very tiny subculture. But very significant, however, that this polygamous household in Mali would be watching Big Love dubbed in French. And, so I, and I think it is a very resonant detail. The, one of the questions that, it, that it, 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 it poses to us is, is this an instance of the local or the global? Uh, and in a way, that's the sort of thing that was being suggested by s several of our speakers today, at, at, in the end by Ego, who said there are these 
uh, overarching formats that seem to move across cultures, but when you look closely at the content of how the formats are embodied in particular societies, you see profoundly national inflections in them. And so this question of the tension between a local, a tendency toward localism and a tendency toward the global seems to me one of the, one of the acute questions that we're, that, that we're considering. Not that there's a sort of answer to it, but it's a, an issue we need, to be, we need to be aware of. I have one question I'd like to pose to the panel before we open it to the audience, which is that the tendency of the arguments that you folks have been making is, is largely a version of what I've been saying, that there's a kind of local inflection all the time. But would you deny the value of talking about certain kinds of formats like the Big Brother format or the Survivor format, which seems to proliferate across cultures, not just Western cultures, but cultures, but, but, but but Asian cultures as well, uh, uh, that, we can, that, 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 that the same kind of uh, humiliation plot or the same kind of uh, uh, competition story uh, seems to be so uh, uh, easy to, to adapt to different cultures. Doesn't that imply that there is also some, not necessarily universal, but globalizing uh, shared impulse as well? I mean, would, why would the, the format, it seems to me, I guess I want to re recover some idea that there also, there's also some sense that uh, television is, a, is still a more shared experience, is becoming a more, a more shared experience across national boundaries than had been the case before. You think that's wrong? Big Brother's, sorry, Big Brother's case is kind of special because it turns on voyeurism, and voyeurism is so central to the, the logics of, of television. So I think that's one where, let's say at a, at a relatively abstract level, you can make a claim for, claim for kind of universal, perhaps a kind of universal mode of engagement. But with the other ones that I know of, the changes are pretty, I mean, Wheel of Fortune definitely looks like Wheel of Fortune. But the more interesting ones, and especially the reality shows, I think the ones I know of are profoundly different from one another. Like I, like I tried to suggest at the end of my 15 minutes, that for me, they're almost metrics of cultural specificity. They're almost ways, if you wanted to sort of, and it does wind up being a caricature often, but if you really wanted to see the German character over and against the Dutch or versus the Swedish, line up those, whatever the hell that show is, All You Need Is Love, or whatever that, day, that sort of love show was, I can't imagine a more uh, articulate way to sort of put your finger on how cultures see their, enact these, 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 these rituals. Um, so I think it depends a little bit on the, on the format. And um, that's what I would say. On the, particular, on the particular topic, and I think Big Brother is... In that sense, perhaps a somewhat so exceptional would, one. Ego, your well, reaction? I would address uh, Big Brother in a different way. Uh, certainly, it uh, uh, invites for voyeurism, but at the same time, uh, people in most countries I've been to have to live together in social aggregates. Uh, they not totally define themselves, like families. You start with a choice, and then it gets. Uh, develops in own dynamics. And you have to cope with these guys on a daily basis. And that's uh, the uh, concept of Big Brother. Ten people put together and uh, survive and uh, uh, show how you, you deal with the questions of life. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a game format in it that kind of uh, puts pressure on people uh, to uh, perform and, 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 and to survive under certain conditions, which makes more visible how people would do so in the everyday life. Well, you can call that voyeurism if people want to see this, uh, but it's at the same time a form of uh, ethnography, 
of uh, everyday life. And that this is appealing to audiences all over the world. I think it's uh, not surprising. The more surprising uh, aspects or uh, cases are those countries where such format, formats uh, uh, don't speak to the audience and don't make it. Um, I don't know whether Big Brother uh, didn't make it in a specific country. I have come, come across an example. But at the same time, we, we uh, should not directly translate uh, the very characteristics of a formant to uh, the national culture, since it's a, it's a layered process. There are cultures of production. Uh, there are uh, there's scheduling. There is uh, like money involved. There are few countries who can afford to adapt uh, formats, since uh, it costs more than just buying the stuff, uh, dubbing it, or uh, and, and and things like uh, the show you mentioned. That is really the 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 most uh, unexpensive way to do it. There's few countries that have a developed television culture that can afford. Uh, to buy formats and uh, produce them themselves. And then these are the formats who uh, dominate prime time television uh, in Europe, and the American quality shows you, you uh, addressed uh, are like uh, late night shows or to be uh, uh, taped shows uh, after uh, 12 a.m. in the morning. Um, so, um, we shouldn't forget that there's a whole system of production that kind of uh, works as a filter before we can uh, try to analyze or see a show uh, as a typical cultural product of this or that country. Yeah, actually, just to, to speak about drama, um, I think that there's, there's obviously two explanatory modes for the success of both American film and television abroad. One is the institutional driver, you know, that you've got um, Hollywood, which has, since the teens, been powerfully institutionalized globally, um, often aided by the government, um, and increasingly, as I've already indicated, needing um, revenue streams from abroad, um, so increasingly looking to, to, to those revenue streams, increasingly pushing American product. Um, you know, do, do you want to um, reduce the um, appeal of American television abroad to those institutional structures? Um, or might you want to argue uh, somewhat along the lines that David has suggested that there are um, there are perhaps ways in which American television, for whatever reasons, um, appeals to um, some sorts of universal values, or at least permits itself to be reconfigured in a way, appropriated in a way that perhaps other forms of programming can't. Um, there's a chap called Robert Scott Olson who's written a book called Planet Hollywood where he argues that there's a what he calls a certain kind of narrative transparency that allows people to fill it in. I, I don't really buy that. Um, but I think... Um, I think um, you know one also has to. I think, as Echo's indicating here, you have to you have to be very particular and very specific. Um, that the the American quality television phenomenon is quite different from other forms of quality television. There's a whole lot of shit that, from America that I can watch on on American on British television, as well as the good stuff, right? Um, and that's the scholarly term for that is dreck. Ah, uh, Greg. Yes, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, we shouldn't get too carried away with. Uh, and each time I come to this country, um, I think, oh my 
God, why am I studying American television? You know, it's, it's, it's like this gibbering idiot jumps out of the screen, grabs me by the throat, and shouts at me and covers my face with spittle. Um, so it's really the case that these quality programs are um, you know, being inserted in very different televisual flows, very different regimes. Um, and I think that, I mean, it would be interesting um, to, th uh, uh, to look at other European countries. There is the European Audiovisual Observatory, which each year um, issues a report on um, European fictions and also talks about American fiction. As I said, I think um, in the UK, the really fascinating phenomenon is, this, in fact, it's moving from um, the sort of marginalized, the minority, much more into the mainstream. And I think that has profound implications for um, how British television is going to work and perhaps subsequently European television. Just a really quick irony. I mean, there's an, there's an irony here that, that shouldn't be missed. The, I think the success of Hollywood in Europe and perhaps in the world, has to do with predictability and redundancy. Um, some of my Dutch students did studies of reviews of American films and discovered, I mean, you know, big budget, happy ending, big stars, special effects. You, can, you get hits on those immediately. They, every, every review sort of signals those as a mark of Hollywood. If you were to do the same kind of analysis of reviews of Dutch films or European films, we did, we did both, well, we did European, um, there was nothing. Only when you threw a negative in would you find, like, oh, no stars and uh, not a happy ending. And um, I think that predictability for Hollywood has been a key marketing, uh, has, has been a key component of the marketing success of American films. The irony is that, and, and this goes to what Ego was talking about, the irony is that Europe caught on with television. And what are they selling? Predictability. They're selling the formula. So it's, it's kind of ironic that the strength of the American film industry over the last 50 years has been sort of distilled and it's fed back not to us now through some of these format, these European-based format shows. That's, that's kind of interesting. There are, there are many ramifications to this uh, uh, way of thinking about television. One that's worth mentioning, at least briefly, uh, some of you who were, who were here when we heard from the producers of Heroes will recall that the people who make Heroes uh, the immensely successful American show were very conscious of the idea that if they created a multicultural cast and created some events that took place in Japan and some events that took place in in South America, they would have, in a sense, a global program before it before it even before it, it even <laughs> was generated. Right, um, and, and so that's another aspect of this. I mean, there, there are certain American producers, especially, who are already uh, they may have been anticipated in by, by, by certain movies. Movies that that play down language and play up special effects because they don't require translation in the same way. But it's clear that one tendency in in the in the. Uh, production world of American television is to move towards certain forms of programming that will have a kind of multicultural appeal, a, a, a transnational appeal that also is probably at least part of the picture that we're uh, um, trying, to, trying to sketch in here. It's still my impression, however, that, that the television environment today uh, is, uh, it has, the American television environment today at least, has more programs in it that are more widely shared in other societies than had been the case in earlier generations. And uh, we need to talk, I, hopefully we'll be able to talk a bit more about this phenomenon as we go on. I'd but I, I'd like to open the discourse now to those, to those of you in the audience. Please come to the microphones on either side of the, of the, uh, 
uh, in, in both aisles if you have questions or if you uh, want to make an observation. And I thought we might, while we're waiting for folks to sort of come up with their questions, turn to a specific issue, which is, I, I wonder if I could ask each of you to um, think of a, of, of a really sort of concrete example, uh, a specific program or a, even, a, even a moment from a program that, or, uh, that, that you think uh, powerfully illustrates first this, this, this point of the, the, the uh, difference in different cultures of a, of a broad format. In other words, and I go, maybe you could address this first. Uh, in other words, the, the way in which, say, uh, a, 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 a program like uh, uh, one, one, of these, one, of these, one of these police shows, one of these reality police shows, might have really powerfully different inflections in, say, German culture as against American culture. What would be an example of that? Well, well these. Uh Reality crime shows um, are related to to the national legislation, which makes them very different. Um, as you, um, if if you study the the history of of that genre that finally became America's most wanted uh, in European countries, you'll see how uh, the different countries struggle in different ways how to adapt. Uh, this format, not just uh, the producers or the t producing channel, but uh, um, a lot of expert hearings, uh, uh, legal expertise, uh, parliamentarian debates that kind of define rules uh, to what extent these shows might uh, investigate in, in, in uh, searching criminals. Um, but this is... Is there a difference in the kind of crime that they would focus on? Um, there's a difference in the... Americans be more obsessed with serial rapists and Germans more obsessed with jackbooted uh, uh, child abusers or something? Well, they... Uh, <laughs> Just talking about cultural stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, well, they, they all kind of invest in capital crimes. Capital crimes. Capital crimes, uh, since uh, the idea is you only uh, start using television as a means of uh, chasing criminals uh, when the police doesn't uh, uh, succeed. Um, so it's most of the time capital crimes, but the way uh, this is depicted in uh, the reenactments uh, and whether um, people will be interviewed who were part of uh, uh, this is totally different in, in the countries. Uh, the Netherlands has a very liberal uh, legal climate. Um, it has a very soft version of this program, whereas the American is the most uh, aggressive one. Aggressive in the sense of being most hostile to the criminals? Yeah, m yeah and, and uh, calling itself manhunt wouldn't be possible in uh, one of the European countries. Well, I've so, studied so the Dutch are sympathetic to the criminals in a way the Americans are not? <laughs> They, they uh, agree as a nation not to talk in this language about criminals. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the there's a system of, of uh, uh, supervising program and program production by the state and uh, would just uh, not be allowed. It's uh, kind of censored by the police. Right. So this is a profound reinforcement of William's original point yeah. about the uh, about how deeply different these very same formats might seem. 
So just to give a sort of oddball example, CNN, right? CNN, we well, Atlanta-based, and we tend to think of it. And and when I, in a European setting, many nations, many many broadcasting systems do have uh, CNN on them for the traveler, for the American or English-speaking traveler. Um, and certainly in a Dutch context, uh, people look at CNN with a kind of, uh, yeah, something between amusement and wonder. It seems like, as Fox looks to us, CNN compares to the Dutch broadcasters. It seems very, very conservative. And oh my god, you poor Americans. No wonder you voted for George Bush. And no wonder. So what's interesting, though, is that as an American, when I look at CNN International, the European feed, it is not the American CNN. It's not the unbranded CNN. It has a separate, it's a separate production unit. And even events that are covered live, like I remember uh, my wife Maria was uh, in Holland when they were having a memorial service after 9-11 for the victims. It was in Yankee Stadium or something. And I was here in, in uh, Cambridge. Uh, and when I called her, I, I heard in the background that she had the television on. And it was the same soundtrack. Oh, you're watching CNN, yeah. And I, there was a shot of a kid in front of a flag, one of these almost, you know, if it had occurred in the uh, 40s in Germany, you would have thought it more appropriate. One of these sort of striking, strikingly odd, odd shots. And I said, oh, look at that kid in front of the flag. And she said, no, 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 I'm looking at the long shot of people on the field. And then we started to track the shots of this live event with the same soundtrack, and the shot overlap was virtually non-existent. So, Something that you would just kind of assume is that same carrier. I mean, it's coming from the same organization. The efficiencies of, of cost and production would suggest that they're just going to you know, send that feed directly over from Atlanta is not the case. And then when you think about CNN as a global entity with CNN Asia, CNN Africa, um, it's really interesting that that brand, in fact, represents quite different things. Uh, still America always, but quite different things in different regions. So that was really, for me, a kind of an eye-opener. That's a good example. That's a good example. Well, how about since we seem to have a silent audience here? Do you, how about if we show well, a clip? Oh, should, should we try again to see are there people well, like they, to ask they, questions? They, 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 they're they're free to do it. Yes. Um, I should have a question uh, about maybe trying to ask a approach global television from a different direction. Um, I was thinking of um, film scholar Miriam Hansen who had this idea of uh, vernacular modernism. And so she, when she was asking about the rise of a sort of global modern cinema, she tried to say, well, you know, uh, instead, of, instead of looking at it strictly according to sort of industrial patterns, there also was the rise of something like uh, a new production of the senses, a new set of aesthetics. And that when you look at the, uh, the ability of Hollywood to uh, globalize so efficiently, part of it, uh, Part of it was, you know, you really have to, you really have to ask these, these questions about uh, new types of aesthetics and ways of looking at the world. You can't, you can't have something that's totally driven by industry or commerce or capital or politics. And it seems like with some of what you're talking about with like quality television, there's a, there's a very clear aesthetic shift. You know, there's a different type of scope. There's a different type of narrative. There's a whole set of practices that, to me, uh, they seem closely linked with changes taking place uh, from the internet, from digital distribution, but also cannot be uh, reduced to um, you know, industrial, commercial, political drivers. Uh, so is there, is, there, is there a way of uh, bringing this into the discussion of global television, these aesthetic, uh, sensorial, 
questions? I, I was not aimed at me in the first instance, perhaps. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> interesting that you should raise the issue of aesthetics, since David and I were both on a panel at SCMS that I just put together about aesthetics, um, in which I said that I was still profoundly ambivalent about that sort of an approach. I mean, you know, I don't want to give a whole lecture on quality telly, um, but clearly um, there are many industrial determinants of quality television and um, the reasons for the aesthetic practices in which it engages being directed toward a particular audience coming from a particular set of producers. Um, I was having a chat with John Caldwell in fact over lunch, um, most of you should know his name, who said that um, and what I concluded from what he was telling me about Hollywood labor practices, Hollywood production practices, there's a very closed circuit of people both make it, making those quality shows. Um, he said, for example, he couldn't, when I think he was, uh, or knew of people teaching at Cal State who couldn't get um, interns on The Simpsons because it was a Harvard show. Um, and certainly, um, I got the impression that there was this closed circuit, uh, sort of a very Bourdieuian sense of um, television being made by me for me, in a way. Um, and I think we can't ignore those kinds of things, and that partly, and I think that one, some of the aesthetic things that you're therefore talking about with quality television, for example, it's um, in shows like Six Feet Under, Jane Foyer talks about how it's clearly drawing upon the European art house tradition. Um, and that it's uh, um, and that it's drawing upon other cinematic traditions, that it's valorizing authorship. Um, I think that one shouldn't ignore aesthetics, but I'm still, you know, I, I, I think we still need to to very firmly place those aesthetic considerations with the in industrial conditions of production and reception. I mean, my my sorry, my sense would be, I mean, it works for film in better ways than it works for television, and I think the the root of it in film has been the yeah, it could be the, um, the attribute or the critique of Hollywood as cosmopolitan, right? Co Hollywood has always been a multicultural space where, you know, America's sort of wide reach in, in, in global cinematic terms has used a lot of the world as a kind of talent farm, plucking off good writers, good actors, good, good cinematographers. Um, so that the result has been that Hollywood's uncanny ability to match you know, sometimes the argument is America's a pretty polyglot market and Hollywood by trying to reach that market by necessity reaches the world. But I think it's more complicated. It does have to do with production. And it's about having a pretty polyglot production team, um, which has meant a kind of, I mean, I would, I would use the term cosmopolitan in, in Beck's sense and in a pretty positive sense of this, in fact, being a pretty, a pretty global industry, although obviously its, its cultural vocabulary tends to be quite American. American suburbs or the locations or the American president saving the world. But look at Independence Day and it's like profoundly, it's pretty German and multi-culti production unit. TV, that doesn't seem to happen so much in the States. And again, that's where I think the European advantage has been with the format market that you know, Europe by definition tends to be, at least the cities tend to be very cosmopolitan and that ability to sort of tap to sort of find a way to crack that nut without specifying it culturally, to find frameworks that really work across borders. Um, but I, I guess I would just echo a little bit, Roberta. To me, the driver is purely, it's pure economics. It, it's, it's cosmopolitan by bottom line. <laughs> it's cosmopolitan because it works and it opens, it opens markets. But I think the film story, and, and especially Hanson's notion of vernacular modernism, I would think it's a little harder to press, at least my understanding, my, my logic for it, my explanation for it, is a little, little harder to situate in televisual terms. 
Um, yeah, but, but even though uh, it's all uh, economically uh, driven, mm -hmm. uh, a change in uh, cultures of production uh, causes a change of uh, the production of culture. And if uh, in many countries uh, formatted television replaces in prime time uh, time slots, uh, like American, American uh, drama, uh, the audience will be exposed to different stuff. Uh, and um, as far as I see, format television, game shows, and reality shows address so so social questions in a very different way than a drama, especially a quality drama, does. So type of conflicts, contests between uh, more or less talented people, is a totally different type of problem, dramatic problem, and uh, dramatic development than, uh, let's say, uh, a uh, character like uh, Tony Soprano. Uh, so the way you will start engaging with the world and watching television as a device that kind of reflects uh, in a public service tradition or a quality tradition, um, society and discusses society, uh, issues in society uh, will be different. It's about the individual perception uh, and uh, the, the uh, economy of, um, what is it, Zufall? Too far. Yeah, economy of, of uh, coexistence and, and emotions instead of uh, dramatically by writers uh, uh, and, and, and directors developed social conflicts that have a discursive, a discursive dimension. Um, if I could just pick up on what William was saying, though, I, I think he's absolutely been right about television so far as opposed to the cosmopolitanism of film production, but as with so many other things, the distinctions between those two industries are breaking down. Um, as American television producers increasingly look abroad to um, foreign revenues, they're increasingly packaging um, shows like Lost, like Heroes, with um, you know Asian actors or, or um, English actors um, that are intended to appeal abroad. So I think we may see a, a, a certain cosmopolitanism, and I hate to call Lost a cosmopolitan show, um, but we may see that actually increasing, and we may also see, just as we're seeing um, many television, sorry, many film people going into television, um, we may also perhaps see more of an international flow along those lines. Uh, oh, first of all, uh, Tim Havens talks uh, in his book about the uh, the sale of television that that television traders are essentially a, a closed a, a closed shop, and so a little bit like the point you make about about The Simpsons being a uh, a Harvard show. Havens argues that that part of the the uh, part of the culture that gets television programming traded internationally through MIPCOM and those sorts of things is a culture that's completely determined by a bunch of television sellers who spend their in, television buyers who spend their enti entire life flying from television show a uh, television um, market to television market selling and buying and selling programs and so there's this incredible presumption about the extent to which um, the market demand actually plays a role in the selection of programs because it's this closed shop which uh, is is to follow up the points that have been made but but also segues into the point the, the question I'd like to ask and 
These discussions about international television, the globalization of television, and in fact most discussions about television generally at the moment are really heavily oriented around notions of uh, ideas of programming and, and, and discussions of programming. And it, it seems to a certain extent, especially as someone who's not necessarily interested in television but more fundamentally interested in television systems, that, that the idea that we can talk about anything other than programming is sort of being pushed to the wayside a little bit at the moment. So I'm somewhat interested in in the extent to which uh, non-broadcast distribution systems, be they uh, legal, illegal, uh, DVD or looking like television, satellite, um, international services. I mean, out of Australia, there is a, an Asia-Pacific sort of channel that, that run, runs slipshod over all of the distinctions between public and, and commercial broadcasting and just packages up any content from Australia as a representation of Australia and beams it out to the world. I'm sort of I'm interested in the impact um, of these non-broadcast systems on the way that we think about the connection between television uh, nations and communities. Um, partly because uh, there is there is some work uh, at the moment that looks at you know viewing communities oriented around television programs, and these are communities that no longer need to be domestically grounded. Um, uh, the, the, the diasporic model is one that comes to mind at the moment is one that could be perhaps start to be generalised out to speak about more television viewers than just displaced peoples. Um, the, other, the other question I have is, is about the significance of, of the, 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 the system in which the television is broadcast. It used to be, particularly in, in language groups, I'm, I'm unfortunately not sure what the, what the state is in Europe, certainly in, in Australia where we speak English um, predominantly, um, we, we have a tendency to suck down programming from all of the English language speaking markets, which means we don't have to translate it, which is, which is good because you don't need to dub and you, you don't need to, to subtitle. And so television systems, um, be, be they mostly channels, do a whole lot of work to contextualise international programming within domestic logics. And so it's, it's simple, uh, it's mechanical things like editing for content, um, but then it's also a whole lot of representational things, like packaging up particular programs as belonging to particular networks. And this is, I think, is especially significant when we think about HBO spreading around the world, because of course within the US, HBO has uh, an identity that runs across all of these programs, but when you go to any other television market, often you'll find HBO programming on two or three different different channels. And so I suppose I'm wondering if you can spend a minute just talking about perhaps the impact of, of this, this, this depackaging, I suppose, of programming um, on the relationship between, between nations and, and programs itself and the impact that it has for, for audience groups, which may be oriented around taste culture now. Um, rather than being oriented around sort of sort of any any sort of national or, or domestic orientation, and just <laughs> the final point I want to make is that the the, the difficulty that this poses is, is that from an audience perspective, it overcomes that that delay in viewing. So there there are a bunch of people. Australia has generally caught up with with anything that's running in prime time, um, particularly the stuff that comes from the UK and the stuff that comes from from the US. But you know, for a great time, there are a bunch of viewers who so interested in, in keeping up with the programming, were driven away from any kind of legal official um, way in which to consume it because, you know, uh, in, a, in a foreign market, programs over which you have no control over the production of suffer from the vagaries of whatever's happening sort of domestically. So I'm just wondering if we can speak about that for a minute.
So maybe two, just, just two quick responses. Would you like me to summarize it? No. Um, so I tried to add a little epilogue that talked about IPTV and, and point a little bit in that direction. And so I think, yeah, what's really interesting with that, it's, it's clearly provoking a bit of crisis in the industry, at least some sectors of the industry and some sectors of the academy. What do you do with, uh, what do you do with sort of programs ripped out of a context and lumped together in a, in a portal somewhere that you can download as you will. You miss the whole context. Whatever it was surrounded by programmatically or in terms of the, the more ephemeral side of things, ads, bumpers, whatever, that's all gone. Spacing of it, sequencing of it, all those sort of regulatory regimes are absent. So you miss context, you miss regulation. How do you cope with these little free-floating texts? A lot of questions to be asked about that. And, um, and I think there be there that just watching the increase of that amount of the availability of that kind of programming is extraordinarily interesting and changing things really fast. And we're not not very many people are looking at it. The other side is the more structural side, which is the diaspora model. And we we just finished a study on um, use of uh, Turkish television by Turks in the Netherlands, Germany, and Britain. Um, and that was really interesting because the perception of mainstream Dutch, Germans, and Brits is that, oh, this is not a good thing. These guys are not being robustly acculturated in our space. They're going home and listening to Turkish and watching Turkey. And in fact, um, the use patterns we found through a fair amount of ethnographic study was that it's, re I mean, it's extraordinarily interesting and rich and ranging from sort of Turks whose whole, sort of just, you know, second generation Dutch Turks whose whole notion of Turkey is a televisual notion. When they make the trip back, they're in a state of shock and sort of reprimanding Turks for not being Turkish enough. And some, they're living some imagined, living with some imaginary Turkey. Uh, and other people on the other extreme who just sort of watch it and do these endless critiques of like, oh God, am I glad I'm in Holland? And, uh, you know, but there they're getting the stream, they're getting the feed, they're getting the bumpers, the news, and the, the whole package. The fragmented stuff, the free-floating stuff, that is, I don't have an answer for you except just point to that and say it's rising exponentially right now. And um, especially in some like Asian markets where the IP crackdown has not, has not stemmed the flow, that is extraordinarily interesting stuff. Yeah, I have mic, because it's being recorded. Sorry, I was, I was, I was going to say, I, I have a piece forthcoming that looks at, at the impact of this, which is why I was interested in, okay. in, in, in your perspective. What's, what's funny is that particularly in this country, you can get uh, content, US content, uh, from Korean, uh, say, sites uh, with uh, sometimes French uh, subtitles on it. And, it, and it, if, you know, for a foreign viewer, having to read through all of that is not necessarily, not necessarily a, a challenge or, or, or even a foreign experience. But I, I wonder whether this, that kind of experience is, is either cosmopolitanizing the US in terms of its own viewing experience, um, or, or alternatively, whether it's just becoming more common as we kind of cobble together these communities around this programming. I think what you see is um, that, um, again, with American television, and particularly American tele quality television, um, that this is um, um, an instance where people are, have been desperate to, to be in sync, right? Um, so my students, you know, download Lost, download Desperate Housewives, all those kinds of things. Um, and I think that it's... 
Uh, so just curious. According, well, according to some definitions, Desperate Housewives would be called, I think, in terms of its sort of aesthetics, in fact, sort of cinematic aesthetics, right? I happen to like Desperate Housewives, but, um, and so do my students, in fact. And that, that's another point um, that, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a, a, a course on, on American quality television at the moment. All my students know it. All my students love it. They're thrilled to be there. Most of them like it better than the UK stuff at the moment, and most of them are reasonably savvy about how to acquire it, you know. Um, they say they're going to work on a show that they haven't seen yet, and I say, well, go find it, and I'm not going to tell you how, right? Um, but those are the kinds of things, I think, that are also um, causing the industry to attempt to uh, enforce a, a, a more global regime of distribution, right? It's precisely, my God, we're missing profits, right? Um, and what we have to do is to make sure that we sync it up, to make sure that we, you know, we, we, we do a deal with Sky where our mobisodes will be available legally rather than having somebody hack into them over here. Um, even, even more disturbingly, and I can't show you because the BBC website doesn't seem to be functioning at the moment. Do you think we can get any further into that? where it says accessibility help or anything. Um, what I'd like to show you here is um, that a lot, uh, uh, in fact, um, and I'm not sure if this is the first instance, but you know, ancillary product is usually um, produced in the States and then distributed abroad. What we have with Heroes um, is a case where um, the um, company in, that does a lot of the BBC's logos, an outfit called um, Redby, is producing um, <laughs> you want to talk to the BBC, now's your chance. It has produced, which I can't show you because it doesn't seem to, little 30-second snippets with the original actors from Heroes um, talking about their powers produced for the BBC to be shown in the UK, presumably with public service television money. Um, and I find this a very interesting phenomenon. So not only has the global reach of American television been about um, syncing up, doing deals, they're now might be able to find it there. Heroes Unmasked, that's it. That's the one, here, this one here. That's the, that's the, uh, if you wanna go, if you wanna go look at content that actually I think is not distributed in this country, um, go to the BBC website. Um, so I think that the changes, the tensions between the inverted commas, illegal modes of appropriation, the legal modes of appropriation, the way in which um, American television is trying to globalize. Um, it's all up in the air right now. And, and fundamentally, it, it's, I think um, it's about both systems and content, right? I mean, I always say when people say they're interested in systems, but you know, what, what are people watching? You know, it, it's the content, right? But you have to think about how that gets distributed. And my, my impression is, uh, well, we are in a, uh, phase of, of a period of transition and they will uh, develop new systems of distribution and the industry is trying to de develop models uh, like uh, iTunes to get uh, users buy the stuff for a relatively small amount on uh, the distributor's website instead of investing time and, and, and knowledge to find all these sites where you can get it for free. Uh, this is a very specific culture, and I must say, my students in Ann Arbor, Michigan, kind of are naive. If I, well, I have a GSI who gets everything from me, but if I ask in my class, uh, it's on the future of television, have you ever watched a an illegal downloaded show? It would be two of uh, 30. And this is uh, the, the I thought, context. yeah, different, <laughs> I suppose so, but this is a very specific group of people who know, has that knowledge, 
uh, and uh, this won't be uh, the um, mass that will uh, kind of get itself this way. The mass will buy it uh, in their iTunes store or whatever they develop. And you can see from uh, the uh, websites from, uh, of the nature networks here in the US how this uh, model would look like. You can see an most episodes of recent shows, but you have to get uh, some, some advertisement. You can choose two minutes in a row or um, every 15 minutes, 30 seconds, and so on. Uh, so they start to inventing systems to, to get the re revenue back. So we have two Joshes at the mic, but Josh, just to, since you're Australian, I'll go extreme on you and, and say, okay, if we want to step outside the program, another really interesting space to look at are audience metrics. And that's a place where U.S. has always been a driver globally. In other words, the way we do the metrics, the Nielsen Company metrics and Arbitron and that sort of stuff, has really been the, the model for planet Earth. And as commercial television comes to places like Europe and the rest of the world, and as even state and public broadcasters are driven a little bit by notions of numbers, America has had a field day and, and sort of has, has had a kind of hegemony in terms of how numbers are done. Mm. And what we're seeing with digital feeds, whether through cable or satellite or you know internet, is that there's a whole other reality out there and it has to do with really precise data transfer. That American-based model is pretty much on running on fumes right now. It's almost over. So that's a place where the American model has had global impact and it's just about, it's on the it's holding on by its fingernails. Because, because the net allows a much more accurate way and, of and measuring audiences. Well. Yeah. Right. I mean, what, one implication of this discourse clearly is that the, uh, the elephant in the room is the internet, isn't it? That, that is to say, what, one of the deep drivers of what, what, however we describe this globalizing, localizing tendency, the internet is, is behind a lot of it. The fact that, the, not the fact that people can get access to materials in, in new ways, and that there's and there are these proliferating uh, 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 sources of of the message uh, seem, seems to be uh, at least in part one explanation for this phenomenon we've been describing. Josh, number two. Um, it was kind of funny that it, it was you, David, who was saying that the the elephant in the room was the internet. Um, my thunder was kind of stolen by, by the other Josh, that guy who's writing the book, kind of caught on to what I was going to go for. But I'd read this, um, uh, before I, I came here, one of the last things I remember reading in a newspaper in Los Angeles was the, um, the Nielsen ratings for Los Angeles in Southern California. And there was something in there that kind of surprised me, and it's relevant to like the last 15 minutes of conversation. But I would have put it somewhere different, and I want to throw it in front of you guys and see if, if I'm off or what. But it was that um, six of the top ten rated shows in Southern California, home of Hollywood and this and that, were Spanish language, most of them produced by, um, by Telemundo. And um, my first reaction was that this totally caught me off guard, and I wouldn't have expected it. And then I slapped myself for being surprised by that. I, I do that a lot. But... Um, what struck me was that this said something about who was watching television and the the um and who who was watching and the the metrics that who would get caught by those and who those metrics aren't catching and this struck me this was the the elephant in the room for me a lot was that looking at how okay these television shows are crossing these borders but you know crossing from from the the united states to northern europe 
there are substantially different crosses that may not happen. And when you talked about the Turks, um, uh, you know, the, the second generation Turks watching in Holland, it seemed that there's, there's an awful lot of other cultural tr transfers and maybe bigger ones that happen that don't catch or that are catching on the internet and not on broadcast. And broadcast maybe, I don't know if it's getting left behind or what. But I, I was curious now to throw this in front of you guys. Does that, does that fact even matter? Or does does it not anymore because the internet will free us all? Or <laughs> I, I think one of the things is that um, you still have to think about um, broadcast television. There, I mean, um, you know, Globo. I, th I think is the third largest producer of television programming in the world, right? Um, and there's those of you who you know talking about uh, this this website, Sojo. Certainly, um, there's a whole nother. Um, region of the distribution of television, an Asian region with with Hong Kong soaps and 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 you know um, Korean soaps as well, and that's not something that any of us are particularly ex expert in. Um, but I think that before, obviously the internet's important. But before we jump directly to the internet, I think we still have to think in more traditional. Uh, terms about broadcast um, production and distribution, which had already uh, certainly globalized um, in in many ways. And I must say also um, about I, I think that what you've just said is profoundly important. Um, in my um, sort of Raymond William-esque encounter with American television a couple of nights ago, when I was just sort of working really hard uh, for a couple of hours um, trying to see American television as it's uh, as it's currently broadcast um, with these hundreds of channels, you know, I got. To to a space on the spectrum when there are about 20 Spanish language channels, some um, presumably from you know watching Mexican football, right? But also ESPN in Spanish. Um, so I think um, in the United States there's a there's a profound transformation going on about the you know the huge uh, percentage of um, both Latino immigrants and and subsequent um, you know native Latinos, if you will, um, which is really changing the television landscape here. Uh, but again, that's not, that's, I think that's not necessarily because of the internet, that's because of other sorts of factors. So um, while the internet's clearly important, um, I'm, I'm one of those people who still wants to argue for the, the kind of ways in which um, broadcast television uh, can pro provide common social spaces and maybe provides common social spaces particularly for diasporic communities as it has done in the past. Elephant in the, sorry, elephant in the room is really a great uh, metaphor to use because um, this is probably one of the most significantly under undercounted populations when it comes to these kind of these kind of studies. I mean, Nielsen sort of has a special Spanish niche study with their Spanish families, uh, their Sp Spanish family cohort. But my guess is they're you know the given the illegal problem, um, a lot of folks just don't respond to those things. I mean that's been documented. Secondly, the, there's the, there's a serious problem, and especially in in your old neck of the woods of Spanish um, household staff, of Spanish domestics that are watching TV, that A, aren't supposed to be, you know, supposed to be like dusting and not watching TV, and B, when the Nielsen folks check, they're not checking with the domestic, they're checking with the, with the, uh, the owner. So whatever percentages we're seeing, and, I, and this is kind of a dirty little secret in the trade, but they know it's vastly bigger. And what's funny is, I mean, it's covered in the trades, of course, but if you don't really look at the trades per se, you'd never even know that stuff exists if you're reading English language papers. Uh, obviously, if you read Spanish papers, you, that's all you see. But, but I mean, it's a, one of those things that's so huge and yet so selectively visible or invisible that it's pretty striking. Thanks, Josh. 
one way to think about our discourse today is to say we've offered no answers but created an, uh, an even more complex contradictory environment in our minds than before, than when, than before we entered this discussion. But that may not be a bad thing. I want to thank the audience and thank the panel. <laughs>